Take your Bibles and turn with you to Romans chapter 8. We were on this verse last week. We'll be on this verse next week. And we'll be on this verse the week after that, at least. Then we'll see where we go. Actually, this week I'm going to be talking about, uh, as, as is stated in the bulletin, why all things work together for good, why we believe that, why that is true. Next week, Pastor Todd will be preaching while I'm in North Carolina, and he's going to be preaching on what does that good mean? What does it mean all things work together for good? What is the good? And then next week, I'll come back and I'll talk about what does it mean to love God? Because Paul says here, he uses that phrase in there, we'll see in just a minute. So we're going to balance this thing out, and that may end us in Romans 8, 28. We're going to 29, or it may not. We will just see. But follow along as I read. Read only verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That is a great promise. That is a great promise that many times leaves many people scratching their head. Because they say, all around me, things are not working out so good. Job's not going well. Family's not going well. Uh, And I, I profess to be a Christian. I profess to love God. I profess to be seeking to follow His purpose in my life. And yet it just seems that all things are not all that good. It's kind of like the psalmist was in Psalm 73 when he said, I look around and I see everybody who hates God prospering. And here I am loving God and trying to be faithful to God and trying to keep my hands clean. And, and I'm struggling. I'm hurting all the time. There seems to be a disconnect, the psalmist says, between the way I see things and the way I believe things. Matter of fact, he says in in verse 1, we'll come back to this later in this message, but he says in verse 1, I believe that God cares for his people. I believe that God does good for Israel, for his people. I know that in my mind. I've got that intellectually nailed down. But emotionally and, and in what I see as my experience daily, I really struggle with that, the psalmist said. And I dare say that many of us sitting in this room this morning struggle with that also. Because we we say, I don't have everything I want. And we feel like that's not good. We we say, I don't don't even think all the time I have everything I need. And we think that's not good. So how can we believe that this is an absolute truth and an absolute promise of God's Word? I remember that in 1971, the year I got married, so I can tell you it's 48 years ago almost. The song is 48 years old. Uh, Andre Crouch wrote a song. I heard somebody refer to it the other day as a contemporary Christian song. 48 years does not make it contemporary. It is an old Christian song. But he wrote a song, and I, I really wanted to sing it for you, but I thought I would spare you. But the title of it is Through It All. You can probably quote most of it uh, because if you've been around long. Some of you younger folks probably saying, who is Andre Crouch and what is through it all? But the, the lyrics of that song said this, and we've sang some great songs today that relate to what we're talking about today too. But Andre Crouch wrote these words. He said, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. 
But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. And in the chorus, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Then he said, I've I've been to lots of places. I've seen a lot of faces. But there there have been times I felt so all alone. But in my lonely hours, yes, those precious lonely hours, Jesus let me know that I was his own through it all. Through it all, I've learned to put my trust in Jesus, and I've learned to put my trust in God. Andre Crouch was saying what the Apostle Paul is saying, I think, in in verse 28 of chapter 8 of Romans epistle, the Romans epistle. Paul is saying all things are going to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Andre Crouch is saying, in the midst of everything I do, my focus must be on him. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, and we sang this, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation at all, because I've learned to trust in Jesus, and I've learned to trust in God no matter what we're going through. But why is it? That Paul can say uncategorically and boldly, all things work together for good. How is it that, God, that Paul can say, I am convinced of this, I don't, I, there's no shifting shadow of this in my life, I don't worry about this not being true, and how can, how can Andre Crouch write a, a, a song that says, through it all, difficult times, no matter what, I just need to keep my focus and my trust on Jesus Christ, my God. Why can he say that? Well, I think there's several things we need to understand about Romans 8, 28. And I think the very first thing we need to see and understand is, is that the grand reason that all things work together for good is because our nearness and our dearness is, is important to God. Our being near to Him, our being covered by Him, our being protected by Him is very important. He has our interest at heart. He has an interest for His people that is tremendous, that is greater than anything you could ever imagine in this world. He expressed that all through the Old Testament and the New Testament by talking about Him being a covenant God. If you listen to what Pastor Ricky read earlier as he read from Hebrews chapter 8, the expression of the new covenant. He, he said, the, the writer of Hebrews says that the old covenant had been invalidated. The old covenant had been broken. The old covenant was not any more uh, current or contemporary or, or working. And so now God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with my people. Now understand, when the writer of Hebrews said that, and you know that I believe Luke wrote the, writer of the, the book of Hebrews, but when, when the writer of Hebrews wrote that statement, he's not saying, okay, now in this point in space and time, God's going to uh, eradicate everything he's done in the past, and now he's going to do something totally new. No, he, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah out of Jeremiah 31. All through Jeremiah, God warns and God says, 
There is coming a day when I will establish a new covenant with my people. There is coming a day when all of these covenant activities like sacrificing lambs and days of atonement and, and certain times of celebration and feast and, 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 and uh, fast, feast and fast, I'm trying to say feast and famine. The famine was not there, but the feast and fast, all these things that God called them to, God said there's coming a day when all of those are going to be obsolete because there is coming a day when there will be a perfect sacrifice. There is coming a day when there will be a perfect offering. There's coming a day when there will be a perfect substitute. And in that day, there will be in his name and by his blood established a new covenant. And God says, here's the key to that. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel made that statement. Other of the prophets made that statement. And, and the writer of Hebrews just sums it all up in that new covenant expression, saying that all that Christ did on the cross has now established this new covenant. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You know, there's a real sense in which we need to see that that word, your God, I will be their God, I will be your God if you are in Christ, that those really are two of the sweetest words and, and singularly the sweetest thought that you maybe can find in all the Bible. Because in that statement, I will be their God, they will be my people, there is this understanding that that, that expression implies great things for the people of God. There's a lot that's implied in that statement. They will be my people. You will be my people. I will possess you. And I will be with you. I will always cover you. I will always be in covenant relation with you. There is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in covenant relationship in Jesus Christ with the living God. I mean, th those are sweet, sweet words. D do you see that? Do you see the preciousness of that? What are some of the things that are implied by it? Well, I think one of the things that's implied by that is that this word or these words, your God, implies the relation of a father. God is saying in that what he said in other places throughout Scripture, that I will be your God in a fatherly way. Now, there's a fatherly sense in which God is fatherly to all his creation, but there's a sense in which he is only father to those who are in Christ. He is only father of those who are in covenant relationship to him. When he says, I'm your God, I'm your father, therefore all that I do is for your good. I'm a father. And, and I never think about how can I do bad for my three kids and now my two grandkids. I never sit around and say, is there any way that I can really trip them up and cause them to stumble? Now, I don't always do everything and never have through their life always done everything they wanted me to do. There's a lot that they probably would like to have seen Dad provide when they were younger, and I just couldn't do it and didn't do it, but it didn't mean I didn't love them. Everything I do in thinking about them, I think about how can I do good for them? How can I do things that help them? How can I cover them and protect them as much as I can from the world around them? And God is that same way with us. He has a fatherly relationship to us. In Deuteronomy 8, 5, it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. He chastens you. 
But also understand this in your heart, the writer would say, that God's chastening is not to destroy you, but God's chastening is to reform you. God's chastening is to shape you. God's chastening is to carve you and move you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, as a father disciplines his son, God will discipline us, not punish us. Our punishment was born on the cross if we are in Christ by the Lord Jesus in that sacrifice. But he will chasten us, he will discipline us in order to make us what he wants us to be. We also need to understand that that in this idea of him being a father, he's not a temporal father, but he's an everlasting father. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, uh, when we think of, and we think about this verse mainly at Christmas time, and that's just a couple of months away, so it's good to think about it now. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called. What is his name called? He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and this is out of order, understand, and Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, Father that never quits. Listen, There are earthly fathers who quit. There are earthly fathers who say, I can't take this anymore. There are earthly fathers who say, I am done. But our Heavenly Father never says that. Our Heavenly Father says, I will be your everlasting Father. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And and everything I'm doing is working toward good in your life. A, A father who is a loving father provides for his children while he lives. But if a father dies, then the child may be exposed to injury. But God never ceases to be our Father. I will be your God. and You will be my people. I will be, my, I will be your Father. And you will be my children everlastingly. But this, this word, I will be your God and you will be my people, also implies the idea of, of being a husband. In the New Testament, Paul talks about how that Christ is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. And and that he cares for his his church. He laid down his life for his bride. He laid down his life for his people. And and so when when the writer says, when Paul says in chapter 8 verse 28 that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, those called according to his purpose, he's saying for his for his children to whom he's a father, and for his bride to whom he's a husband. That's why he says to you husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Be willing to lay down your life for her. Be willing to give of her everything that she needs that's within your power to do. But we have to realize that I don't always have the power to do what is absolutely best for my bride, although I want to all the time. We know that God has the power to do that, and He has the desire to do that, and He will always do that. I will be their God, and they will be my people, implies a fatherly relationship, implies a husband relationship, but it also implies a friend relationship, a friendship. And the Scripture says that He is a faithful friend. In Deuteronomy 7, 
Moses writes, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. He is a faithful friend from generation to generation to generation to those who love Him, just like Paul says, to those who love God. That's not a Pauline concept, that is an absolute biblical concept. From the old covenant to the new covenant, he is our friend and a faithful friend. And he's faithful in his love and he's faithful in his dealings with us. We know that you, O Lord, your, your rules are righteous and in faithfulness you have afflicted me, the psalmist said in Psalm 119.75. Even the, even the afflictions of a friend, even the afflictions of a husband, even the afflictions of a father who truly loves those he's involved with are, are, are there for a reason. It is in faithfulness for our good that we are chastised, we are chastened, we are disciplined, and we are afflicted. Those difficult things, which Pastor Todd will deal with more in depth next week, looking at some biblical examples of, of how afflictions really can be good. And God is a faithful friend. He's an immutable friend. He never changes. That's what Deuteronomy 7 says. He says he, is, he keeps his covenant. His steadfast love is forever. And with those who love him, all the way to a thousand generations. Now you, if you're here and you're old, you may, like me, you may look back and see two or three, maybe even four generations that you're caring for. But the writer of the scripture says, God says through these writers, I will be faithful and I will care not just to one or two or three or four generations. I will be faithful to a thousand generations to those who love me, to those who pursue me, to those who desire me. He is an immutable friend. And this idea of I will be their God and you will be my people implies, I think, even a nearer relation. And Paul deals with this in, in Ephesians. And Paul deals with this in Colossians. And that is, it is a relationship of a head to the members, a head to the body. There is a, there's a unity, there's an attachment that is even greater, as great as father is, as greater as friend is, as great as husband is. There is an attachment, there's a union in our union with Christ in this covenant relationship as a head is that carries out the function of a body. He says, you are the body of Christ if you are in Christ and in the church. You are his body on this earth. He is the head. We listen to him. We seek his purpose. And he functions to tell the members of the body how they ought to function and how they ought to live and how they ought to be. So we know that because of this relationship, I will be their God. They will be my people. That we know that God is in that loving providential relationship working out good for everybody that is in Christ. And that idea of providence is an idea that, that sometimes escapes us. 
That idea of providence is that, that he is overseeing, that he is working, that he is understanding, and that he is controlling the circumstances in which we live. Listen, if God is not a sovereign God in control of all matters, he could not say, I'm working all things together for your good. Bank it. That's a promise. He, he would have to say, I, I want you to know that to the best of my ability, as much as I can, I really hope that I can work things out for your good. It's not what he says. He says, I want you to rest in the assurance of my providence and my providential care that I am working out all things for good if you love me, if you're called according to my purpose. So I want you to know, I want you to understand today, dear church family, my family, whom I love, whom I want to see good come about in your life. I want you to understand that this providential care is powerful. This providential care is complete. This providential care is Him at work. And, and that's kind of the inferences of this chapter. There, there are several inferences from this proposition that all things work together for good that we need to see. And I've already touched on the first one. If all things work together for good, thus we learn that there is providence. There is God at work. Uh, things in this world are not governed by second causes. They're not governed by accident. They're not governed by chance. They are covered by a loving, providential God. They're not governed by the stars and the planets of astrology. They're not governed by something of the council of men. They're whimfully changing all the time by whim. They're, they're governed by a God who is steadfast, immutable, and always true. They're governed by a God who takes care of His people and carries out His promises to His people. There is providence. There are three things involved in God's providence. Obviously, God's foreknowing, God's determining, and God's directing all things to their periods and their events. Let me tell you something. If I could do one thing in your life today, I would, I would encourage you and teach you to adore providence, to love providence to trust in the truth of God's providence. I would ask you, I would, I would help you to see, I would, I would want you to see, I would desire earnestly that you would see that, yes, there are going to be tough times that come, and there are going to be those who hate God and are evil who are going to appear to be blessed by God when you're not. That is absolutely true. But I would encourage you to say with David in Psalm 73, but when I come into the presence of God, when I come into the sanctuary of God, when I come in and seek His face and see His glory, something glorious happens. I see their end and I see my end. And my end is under the providential care of a loving Father. Not under the planets and the stars and the moon, not under chance, not by chance, but under His plan and His purpose. Learn to adore, learn to love providence. And then I would say, notice this. I think the Apostle Paul is going to make clear when he finishes out this chapter that there is a joyful condition for every child of God. 
there's a reason to be joyful because of his providential care. If you go to the psalmist again, Psalm 112, verse 4, the psalmist writes there, he says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Because God is gracious and merciful and righteous. Now, you can read that very legalistically. You can say, light dawns in the darkness for those who have made themselves upright. It's not what the psalmist means. He, again, is talking about a covenant relationship with the living God. Light dawns in the darkness for those who know their God, to those whom He has said, You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will make covenant with you, and I will keep that covenant for all time. He says, in in the midst of darkness, light will dawn. There is an encouragement toward godliness in that statement by the psalmist and in this statement by the Apostle Paul. There is an encouragement to pursue godliness. Here, Here we see the wisdom of God, this God who can make the worst of things imaginable turn into good. For those who love him. The the God who can make the worst of things, the outward trials, the emergencies, when we would be tempted to be discontented, to be able to say with Paul in in Philippians 1.6 that we sang this morning, to be able to say with him, listen, you're not finished with me yet. And I know this, that he who began a good work in me is going to perfect, perfect it. I know that's going to happen. There's the resting in the living God. We see in this truth of, of Romans 8, 28, the truth that Psalm talked about in Psalm 70, that Paul ta- uh, David talked about in Psalm 73. God is good to his people. That is a fact. And when we know that, it ought to be the cause of his people to give thanksgiving. To just give him thanks. You know, the Apostle Paul said, in everything give thanks, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. If in everything give thanks. Think about that. If the worst things turn out for good for the believer, what shall the best things be for the believer? We ought to be thankful. The truth of the matter is, in prayer... Many times, we are woefully lacking in thankfulness. Many times in prayer, thankfulness is kind of left off. Worship is kind of left off in our prayer life. We are really good at petition, aren't we? We are really good in advising God in our prayers. God, if you would do this, things would be a lot better. God, if you would heal my friend or my mother or, my, or, or myself, you know, if you would just do that healing, and that would make that bad that's here be good. But in the midst of that, nothing wrong with petition. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong at all with petitioning God. He tells us to in, in his model prayer. But Paul says, in all things, give thanks. If we, can look at, if we can look at Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's New American Standard because that's what's in my brain. I'm not back over my Bible with, in, uh, with the uh, ESV. If we know that to be true, 
Ought not our prayers be filled with thanksgiving? Even when we can't see it, even when we can't know it necessarily at that moment, just consider that if God makes all bad things good and all good things are even better, and those best things are Christ in heaven, by the way, having Christ in this life, knowing him as Lord, how much more we ought to thank him. And we ought to seek to glorify him. We ought to seek to glorify him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We talk about our, our sort of motto verse around here, Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory forever. I mean, I mean, if God is working all these things together, ought not we be thanking him continuously, and ought not we be seeking to glorify him even in the midst of hellish situations, difficult situations, hard times, times when we just have to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long do we have to endure this? But in the midst of saying that, saying, But Lord, Thank you for the great salvation you've given me. Thank you that you are working in my life. Thank you that I have your promises to cling to. Thank you that I know that, that this will not end in my destruction. It will end in my being shaped and formed and made into the image of Christ ultimately and completely when I stand face to face, but even in this life now. Lord, let me glorify, let me glorify your name and all that I do. You know what doesn't glorify God's name? Complaining. Gossip. Idolatry. Slander. Malice. Or as Paul puts it, malicious gossip. There's nothing wrong with lamenting in the midst of difficult times. The Psalms do it. You don't learn how to lament. Go to the Psalms. Go to the one that says, How long, O Lord, how long? That's David lamenting. The psalmist lamenting over a difficult time. Nothing wrong with lamenting. Nothing wrong with saying to the Lord, How long? There's a whole lot of wrong with complaining. Because, see, when we complain, we're basically saying, God, you're not getting this right. And I know best. I know better than you do, God. Now, we'd never say that. I mean, that would be blasphemous. That would be, we'd be afraid of fire and brimstone coming down on our head if we ever said that. But that's what complaining really is. God, you're not doing what's best for me. You're not working out things in my life for good. And Lord, I deserve better. Whoops. Do you want God to give you what you deserve? I sure hope not. I want Him to give me something through grace and mercy and kindness and love and fatherly care, but not what I deserve. So we're to thank Him because He is working all things together for good. If you're in Christ, if you love God, if you're called according to His purpose, and we're to seek to glorify Him in everything we and we basically advance God's glory in three different ways. We, when we aim at His glory, 
when, when that is the focus of our life, when we make Him first in our thoughts and make Him the last thing we think about, when, when we're thinking about how can I honor you, how can my business honor you, how can my job honor you, how can my work at school honor you, how, how can I just glorify your name, how can I glorify you, we aim at His glory. Our culture aims at our glory. Our culture desires for me to be exalted. Secondly, advance God's glory by being, by being fruitful in His grace. By being fruitful in His grace. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. If you are in covenant relationship with Him, that means you are a recipient of His grace. God has graced you. That ought to change your life. And you're fruitful in grace by sharing that grace with others, by being gracious to others. Not judgmental, not uh, condemning, but by showing grace. Doesn't mean you don't tell them the truth if they're walking in sin, because you do. But you do it with grace. You do it with love. Because if you really love them, you'll show them where they're disobeying God and call them to repentance. I mean, that's, that's what we're told to do. But we will be fruitful in grace. And thirdly, we can advance God's glory and we glorify God when we give praise and glory of all that we do and because of all that He has done in our life. Wow. For we know we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I, I got an email this week. Uh, actually, it's a newsletter. Get it on Wednesday. And it's called The Wednesday Word. It's by Paul David Tripp. Paul Tripp. And he, th this past Wednesday, it came and I went, whoa. That's... That, that says something about where we're going to be Sunday morning. And, and basically, he just says there, there are five questions that, that we need to answer. And we need to be asking and answering. They're deep theological questions. But we need to be asking and answering these every single day. Martin Luther said, you may have seen this posted, Martin Luther said, you know, we need to preach the gospel every day to ourselves because every day we forget the gospel. We need to be reminded. I think these kind of make us be reminded of this whole idea of God's providence. First of all, the first question he says is this. And he's kind of coming out of Deuteronomy 127, where after the children of Israel were led out into the wilderness, they, they grumbled and they complained and they said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And other times he said, he brought us out of Egypt. He, he, he must hate us because back there we had garlic and leeks and onions and, and all sorts of things. And here all we have is this manna to eat every day. That's all we get. Surely God hates us. We know surely God loved them. And, and so Paul David Tripp says, here are five questions. I'm just going to give them to you and we're done. First question we have to ask and answer every day that's deeply theological is this. Is God good? Is God good? You've you got to come to grips with that, folks. 
You say, well, we're Christians. Of course we believe God is good. Well, it, it, it might be that you intellectually believe that, but in your heart you believe that, in your very soul you believe that. But when it comes to what is good, we struggle sometimes to align with God's values in life and for our life. Tripp says it's a dangerous trap if you allow, God to que- if you allow yourself to question God's goodness because then you'll quit following His commands. You'll stop running to Him for help because you'll no longer rely on, follow, seek the help of someone you cannot trust. And He is trustworthy. He is good. But you have to ask yourself that every day. Is God good? Second question is this. Will God do what He promised? God's promises are given and are meant to move us and motivate us toward godliness and toward pursuing Him. And, and, and they... I love Tripp's statement here. He said, they should simultaneously blow our minds and settle our hearts. Will God do what He promised? You've got to ask yourself that. You've got to settle that. Third one is this. Is God in control? Is He truly a providential God? Now, many times where we're living, it may look like chaos. It may look like everything's falling apart, but we have to ask ourselves, is God in control, even when it doesn't appear that He is? If we start questioning God's being in control and start laying everything on natural causes, chance, fate, the stars, we find ourselves in a very spiritually unhealthy place to be. Fourth question, does God have the needed power? Does He have the power to keep His promise, to be good, to be in control? Does He have the power? Well, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. I'm not planning to read that, but I'm going to go there. I want you to hear it. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That is, the immeasurable greatness of His power is toward us who believe. And it's the same power that raised Him from the dead out of the grave and seated Him at His right hand through the ascension into glory, that's the power that God has. It's the same power that said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the same power that out of nothing, He created everything. Ex nihilo, out of absolutely nothing, He created everything. By His Word, the Word of His power. Does God have the needed power? Yes. I got a call about three weeks ago from my friend Jarvis Williams. Many of you have met Jarvis. He's preached here, professor at Southern. And Jarvis called me for one thing. He said, Bill, I've got to tell you about the glorious power of our Lord. And I, I don't know what he's going to say. But he said, for 25 years I've prayed my mother would come to faith in Christ. And tonight, she confessed Christ as Lord. 
He never gave up praying, but he also realized that he didn't have the power to save her. She didn't have the power to save herself. It took the glorious power of Christ. Let me tell you something. Yes, he has the power, but you have to ask yourself that question every day, and you have to answer that question biblically every day. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Go to it over and over and over again. If you didn't write that down, you're going to have to listen to the sermon again just to get that reference. And finally, the question that is the application of all that, does God care about me? Does God care about me? He may be good. He may be powerful. He may be in control. But if He doesn't care about me, He doesn't really love me. All that's for naught. You ever heard of a verse called John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His only unique Son, His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You've heard me state today the covenant promises. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a fatherly love. That's a husbandly love. That is a friend love. That is an everlasting love. An everlasting covenant. Does he really care about me when my boss is being unfair to me? Does he really care about me when my bank account's down to $2? Oh, that's a lot of money. Down to 50 cents. Does he really care about me when there are leaks in the house and I don't have the money to fix them? Does he really care about me when my children rebel? Does he really care about me when I'm struggling in my relationship with my spouse? Does he really care about me when I'm hurting so deeply and so desperately? You've got to come to grips with that. Does he really care? Well, he says he does. And I'm not about to, even in the midst of difficult times, and I've been there, I'm not about to doubt that. Because I know His Word is true. My Word is weak. But we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, we can be certain of that. Now, you want to know what good is? Pastor Todd's going to tell you next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your goodness for your power and your work in our lives. Thank you that we can trust you with everything. Lord God, work in us to reconfirm that, even as we sing of your deep love for us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Stand with me.